Uh, Acts is a, the book of Acts is a really important book, not that it's more inspired than any other book of the Bible, of course, but it's important. It's, all, it's a bridge book. It bridges the Gospels, the four Gospels, with the rest of the New Testament, the letters uh, that we see. It's often called the source book of the New Testament, uh, and it makes sense if you think about it. If all we had were the Gospels, uh, we would it'd be hard to make sense of the rest of the New Testament, uh, but Acts helps us explain the New Testament and particularly the early church and how Christianity began to spread around the known world. Uh, the author of the book of Acts is Luke, uh, the writer of the Gospel of Luke. He was a physician and a companion to the Apostle Paul. Uh, and if you look at the early verses in the book, the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that he's writing to this guy named Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus was a skeptic, it appears. He was investigating Christianity, and Luke is writing in his Gospel and writing in the book of Acts, because you'll see it's also addressed to Theophilus. He's writing to convince him and us this morning that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is at work in the world, and that Jesus came in real history, in real space and time. You'll notice again, as I said, as I read, it's addressed to Theophilus. And so in many ways, and it's been called this by um, many commentators, Luke and Acts go together. You could in some ways say that Acts is Luke part two. So with that in mind, follow along with me as I read God's word, starting uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's talking about his gospel there. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, lifted up, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask God to come through his spirit and to help us uh, this morning. Uh, as we study this passage. Let's pray together. Father, some of us come into this place this morning and we've never been better spiritually 
Uh, we're thrilled with the way our life is going and with the way we've connected to you and the way we're growing spiritually. And for that, we give you thanks and praise this morning. Others of us come into this place very sad. Some don't feel well physically. Others are cynical. Others are tired. Some are confused. Some are struggling with unbelief and doubt. And we pray that you would come, you're present with us through your word and through this table and through prayer. And I pray that your spirit would be at work in every heart this morning. That you would take this passage and show us how it applies to our lives no matter where we find ourselves this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you've heard me say this before. Uh, we, uh, we love the church calendar at our church, but we don't follow the church calendar super closely. But as providence, God's providence would have it, today is known as Ascension Sunday in the life of the church. And we are, by God's uh, providence, studying uh, this morning, uh, the ascension, the, the Christian, it's the Christian celebration when Jesus ascended into heaven after spending 40 days on earth after his resurrection. Uh, and what's interesting is there was a time in church history, particularly in Europe, where the ascension day was a really big deal. It was as big as Easter in celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. It was as big as Christmas, uh, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, And it makes sense if you think about it. Think about all of the creeds that we confess as Christians and what we say we believe. Apostles' Creed, written in the 300s. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried, rose again on the third day, then what? He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Isn't that interesting? Nicene Creed, same thing. When we boiled it down, Christians uh, over a thousand years ago boiled it down of the things you needed to know and that makes you a Christian, they mentioned the ascension. And it's interesting, too, you see the book of uh, Luke ends with the ascension, and the book of Acts begins with the ascension. And the question is, why was the, is the ascension so important that we would mention it as being critical of something that you need to assent or confess as a Christian? Why is the ascension that important? Let me say it another way. You know I like to say, so what? So the real question this morning, and let's say it this way, what does the ascension have to do with your life on Tuesday afternoon of this week in 2019? Why does the ascension matter on Tuesday afternoon? That's the question that I want to attempt to answer this morning. The ascension matters, and I've got... Not two points, not three. This is not to throw you for a loop, but actually four. And it won't be as long as you think. The ascension matters for four reasons, it, or means uh, uh, four things. It means, and it's important because it means that Jesus is still at work, number one. Secondly, it means that Jesus is in control. 
Thirdly, it means that Jesus is always with you. And lastly, the ascension means that Jesus is your substitute. So let's look at those four headings this morning. Number one, Jesus is still at work. Look at verses one and two. Uh, In my first book, what was the first book? The Gospel of Luke. I talked to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And so right from the very beginning, the book of Acts is suggesting uh, very clearly that this book by Luke is going to be about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. To say it another way, the ascension is not the end, and we need to get this, it's not the end of Jesus' ministry. We often think of it that way. The ascension, rather, is a signal that there's a new phase starting in Jesus' ministry where Jesus will pour out the Holy Spirit and will continue to do ministry through the Holy Spirit until he comes again. And the disciples obviously clearly did not understand this if you look at verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They seemed to think it was the end of Jesus' ministry. They... They seemed to think this was it. This was the end. The disciples rightly assumed that Jesus was the Messiah. They had seen him resurrected from the dead. The kingdom had come. They thought Jesus is going to make things right and good again. So they were right in that Jesus was the king. But they misunderstood, and we we see it all through the Gospels, they misunderstood the nature of, of Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom that he was bringing into the world. And so the disciples, and Jesus does it here, they had to have their expectations about the kingdom adjusted. Have you ever experienced that where you were expecting one thing and you got another? Uh, Where you had to have your expectations adjusted? I experienced something similar to this in February of 2017. I found myself entering a kingdom. And I had expectations and dreams about what this kingdom would be like. Because everywhere I saw on TV, on a commercial or on a brochure, said that this kingdom was the happiest place on earth. And not to mention, when you entered this kingdom, everyone was smiling. And when you would talk to them, they would say things like, I hope you have a magical day. And, I, and so, it, rightly so, I'm entering into this kingdom and I'm thinking from everything I'm learning, this is going to be a place of comfort and a place of rest and incredible amounts of joy and constant smiling. Those were my expectations. Only to find that when I entered into this kingdom, there were enormous costs, especially for a simple Coca-Cola, There were long waits, lots of tears, and more sweating than I can tell you. I'm obviously talking not about God's kingdom, but the magic kingdom. I entered that kingdom with the wrong expectations that had to be adjusted. The disciples are entering and thinking about God's kingdom in a way their expectations were off and their expectations needed to be adjusted and that's what Jesus does. Look at verse 6. They were expecting Jesus to restore a physical kingdom of Israel. 
to get rid of their political oppressor, Rome. He corrects them, verse 8, and he says, you will receive power not when we pull out our swords and take everyone down, but when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In other words, I will restore this world, but it will be primarily spiritual, not physical. I will make the world right again, but I'm going to do it not through the powers of human kingdoms, not through violence and uh, strength of arms and war, but I will do it through forgiveness and love and sacrifice. They expected Jesus' kingdom, you can see it very clear again in verse 6, to be ethnic, a restoration of ethnic Israel. He corrects them again in verse 8. Jesus says, no, 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 you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth because the kingdom I'm bringing is for the entire world, every nation, tribe, and tongue. They expected, if you look verse 6 again, will you at this time, in other words, will you now restore the kingdom of God? So their expectations on the timing were wrong. Verse 7, he says, the Father has fixed the time for the complete and final restoration. Jesus is bringing a kingdom into the world, and he brought a kingdom into the world, and it has been gradually and persistently growing ever since. And we have proof of that because on June the 2nd in 2019, we're in Birmingham, Alabama, 2,000 years later, talking about this Jesus. And this morning, if you're skeptical of Christianity, I want you to know I'm really glad you're here. You honor us with your presence this morning. But I have a question for you. How do you explain how a small group of ragtag, largely uneducated Jewish disciples ignited a worldwide movement called the church that has reached literally the ends of the earth? You see, the only plausible and reasonable explanation is that Jesus is alive and that Jesus ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he poured out his spirit and his spirit is alive and he's at work in the world today. And here's my question for you this morning. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is still at work? That's a serious question because I think, and myself included in this, I think we do a really good job of talking about Jesus' birth and his miracles and his death and his resurrection, but often we don't think and talk about what Jesus is doing today. We think Jesus is up in heaven tapping his foot, twiddling his thumbs, and waiting for the Father to give him the green light to return. And we would never say this out loud, but often our actions reflect that this is what we believe. And you know how it's reflected? It's reflected in our non-existent prayer lives. We don't believe Jesus is at work. And it's reflected in the fact that our stress level and our worry and our anxiety, even as Christians, is off the charts. So much so that it is crippling and consuming. It's also shown in the fact, I think, that we don't believe Jesus is still at work because we believe Jesus, because of the ways we give up on people. Who have you given up on this morning? In your life, maybe a parent, 
maybe a child, maybe a friend, maybe a co-worker. Of course, you know, a, a spouse. We say things like this, don't we? I know he said he was sorry, but he'll do it again. I know. I've been down this road. He's never going to change. Or who do we say, I'm tired of praying for that person I've been praying for them to become a Christian for so long, and they haven't yet. I'm done. They're never going to become a Christian. Or we give up on ourselves, don't we? And, and I see this as I get older, but we think we'll never change. And I find myself, we start to think, well, that's just the way I am. And we've got this one particular area, and we haven't changed yet, so I guess we never will. So we'll, get, we'll quit trying. Friends, I don't care whether you're 30, 60, or 80, there is still work to be done in your heart. And Jesus has sent his spirit into your life, and he wants to change you and will change you. Have you given up on the world? Have you given up on our city, on your schools? If you've given up, you have forgotten about the ascension. Because the ascension means that Jesus is still at work in your life and in the world. Secondly, and I promise that's the longest point. Jesus is in control. Ephesians chapter 1 says, God raised Christ up and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Think about this, far above every rule, authority, power, and dominion. We move past this too quickly as well. I want you to think about this with me. Right now, in heaven, there is a real human being named Jesus sitting next to God the Father Almighty. Jesus, real flesh and blood, hair, a body, eyebrows, Sitting next to God the Father Almighty. I heard someone once say it this way. If you, we were to go into the heavenly places and we were to go next to God the Father Almighty and we were to put our finger out, we would hit Jesus and poke him in the chest. There is a real human being right now ruling and reigning in heaven. He is seated. You think that might give you peace and hope on a Tuesday afternoon when your life is falling apart? Right now... Not in the future, right now in the heavenly places, Jesus is ruling over the selling of your home, over your singleness, over your children, ruling over our mayor and over the president of the United States and the generals of our armies, over your marriage and over your boss and over your future and your work situation and over whether or not you make the sports team that you try out for. Jesus is ruling and reigning over all of those things. And I want you to think about that as you think about what you see in the world around you every single day. We buried Danny Meadows a couple of weeks ago, a member of this church for a long time. And when I was at the graveside, I walk up and I see Pat Hackler, and she says, Jason, there is so much pain and suffering and heartache in the world. What do people do without Jesus? And you think about that. And I was like, you're right. You look around and you see loss. 
and you see suffering and people gripped by addiction and we're confused about our lives. And you know what? In those moments when that is all we're focusing on, it tempts us to think, God, where are you? Are you still there? Have you fallen asleep? Because that's what happens when we only look at what we can see. And the ascension makes us pull back the curtain and say, let me show you a throne. And it is not empty, but there is someone who is seated and his name is Jesus. And he is not asleep, but he is ruling and reigning over the entire world. You see, we normally look at God through our circumstances and Christians are called and the Bible calls us to look at our circumstances through the ascension. And think about it. If you look at the world through your circumstances it will crush you and lead you to despair. If you look at your life through your circumstances, it will crush you. Why? Because think about it. When your circumstances line up just right, things are going good for you, and you're happy, you say, and we say this all the time, it's a God thing. When things are going well, God is good. But when you experience loss... Your marriage falls apart and your kids don't turn out the way you thought they would. When those things happen, if you're looking at life through your circumstances, it won't just be a minor setback, trust me. Your life will come apart and you will be undone and you will be angry at God and you will be confused. Friends, the ascension says that it's always a God thing because he is always on the throne ruling and reigning. Listen, God is not pacing He's not wiping sweat from his brow thinking the world is such a mess and this person's life's such a mess. I don't know how I'm going to get this train back on the tracks. No. He's seated as if he's in total control because he is. And you know what that means? He is working all the confusion that you feel in your life, all your suffering and trials and your celebrations and the good things in your life and the things you deeply regret, and he weaves all that together, and I don't understand because my mind can't understand it and yours can't either, but he weaves all those things together for your good and for his glory. And that means that you can trust him. You see, the ascension means that you don't have an absent king on the throne. You don't have an absent father on the throne, but a living shepherd who is walking with his sheep through his spirit. You think that might give you hope on a Tuesday afternoon? I think so. Thirdly, Jesus is always with you. Look at verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It's interesting. At the end, when Jesus was resurrected, Mary Magdalene runs to the tomb. And if you remember, she finds Jesus. And when she sees Jesus, she locks on to him. She's weeping. She grabs hold of him. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I've got to return to my father. The phrase there, don't hold on to me, literally means cling tightly. And so that picture is that Mary is squeezing the life out of Jesus. Why is she holding him so tightly? Because she's afraid of losing him. She wants him on earth as he is. And then Jesus says, I've got to ascend. Because if I don't ascend, then my spirit can't come. And when my spirit comes, that means you'll never lose me. And that's why Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 7, it's better that I go away. It's better that I go 
Because if I don't go, you don't get the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit means I will live inside of you forever and I will never leave you or forsake you. We, like Mary and the disciples, often think that it would be better if Jesus were still on earth. We think that. We think, if I, I would believe if I could just go to Jerusalem and hear Jesus preach. Or if I could hear him teach, then all would be right in the world. It would not. You see, it's, it's better because if Jesus were here, that would mean that he could only minister at one place at one time. But the ascension and the sending of the Spirit means that Jesus is present everywhere all of the time. And he's present here this morning through his spirit, and through the preaching of his word, and through communing with him at this table. So what? What does that have to do with your Tuesday afternoon? Some of our deepest fears, and the deepest fears of being a human being, is the fear of being abandoned. The fear that someone's going to leave you, and you will be left alone. And some of you have experienced this in your life, and you know how deeply painful it is. The ascension matters because it means that in your darkest moments and in your lowest moments, when you've done the thing that you never thought you would do, and you're as low as you could possibly be, even when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus will be with you through his spirit. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. We got invited to go to the lake with some of our neighbors a couple of weeks ago. Um, My family didn't grow up on the water, and so we're not great on the water. This family obviously is great on the water, and we were doing some tubing. They have a daughter named Kate who is friends with Maya Elizabeth, and they were riding a tube in the back of the boat, and you know when you do the tube, the boat gets going, and you swing the tube to the right, and you swing it to the left, and you're trying to throw them off, and they're hanging on for dear life. And my Elizabeth, at one point when she's going uh, out to the side, is halfway in the water hanging on, nothing, she's not even hardly touching the tube. And Kate, her friend, grabs her and pulls her up on the tube so that she doesn't fall off. And is holding on to her as if to say, I am never going to let you go. The waters got rough, the boat sped up, and Elizabeth never fell off. You know why? Because she wasn't alone. She had someone holding on to her. The ascension means that you've got someone holding on to you. And his name is Jesus, and he will never let you go, and he will always be with you, and he will never forsake you. Friends, I don't know about you, but if you believe that this morning, you can look anything that you're facing on a Tuesday afternoon in the eye, and you can take another step forward. You think the ascension matters? You better believe it. Lastly, Jesus is your substitute. Verses 9 through 11. I don't have time to get into all this, but notice the emphasis on seeing and looking in sight. Luke is saying, this really happened. There were eyewitnesses. This was a public event. People saw Jesus in his bodily form ascending into heaven. But something I learned, one of the privileges of my job is I get to study the Bible. And you need to keep praying that the Bible will always come alive to me because this is a dangerous book and it could go the other way. You know that, right? It's a living and active and this book can actually harden your heart. 
And so pray that my heart would be soft. But I get to learn some amazing things, and I learned this this week that I'll share with you. Uh, Think about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word for burnt offering, I learned this week, actually means to ascend. Think about the ascension. The Hebrew word for burnt offering actually means to ascend. It means to literally go up in smoke. And so these sacrifices would be made by God's people, uh, and they would present their sacrifices, and the smoke of the sacrifice would ascend up to God, and it was, as Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9 says, it would be a soothing aroma to the Lord because it was a substitute. It was God receiving a substitute in the people's place and in our place. Why do we need a substitute? Well, because we owe a debt to God for our sin. And so they would, the people would put these sacrifices on the altar and there would be a complete destruction of the animal, again, because the wages of sin is death. And they would do this and it would renew the people's relationship with God because God is holy and man is sinful. And then comes the ascension. Ascending up to God is a pleasing aroma to the Father. Jesus ascending into heaven And he's saying, I am the ultimate sacrifice. I'm the ultimate burnt offering. Because on the cross, my life was completely consumed by the wrath of God. And he ascended up to God and became a soothing aroma. And he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And that is a way of saying it is finished. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. He... Jesus had no need, like the other high priest, to offer sacrifices on a daily basis since he did and he offered the sacrifice once and for all in offering himself. That's amazing. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that restored our relationship with God. And that means right now Jesus is next to the Father and one of the things he's doing is being your advocate, being your perfect sacrifice, and being your perfect substitute. We sing, arise my soul, arise. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears, on your behalf. Before the throne, your surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Right now, think about this. Jesus' name is written on your hands, on his hands. Your name is written on Jesus' hand. There it is. And I think that's pretty amazing. And we say those words and move past those words. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your name is written on Jesus' hands right now. You, who yelled at your kids this morning because they couldn't find their shoes. You who yelled at your spouse last night and raised your voice in ways that you have never raised your voice. Your name is written on Jesus' hands. You who are in the throes of addiction, you who cannot handle your anger, Your name is written on Jesus' hands, and because of that, not because of your goodness, but because of his nail-scarred hands, you stand before his throne with surety. And that's good news. I'll close with this. I have a friend of mine who I was in RUF with. He's a church planner in Louisiana. He lost his 
father a couple of years ago after a bout with cancer. And his father was this high-powered lawyer, very successful, helped a ton of people in the community. Everybody loved him. Uh, He was just this great and very likable guy. And he's on his deathbed dying of cancer. And all of these people are coming to see him. And they're essentially saying, they just kept telling him over and over, you're good. You have helped so many people. You don't have anything to worry about at your death because you're such a great person. You got this. And my friend is talking to his his, uh, dad on his deathbed in his final days. And he says, Dad, don't you die and take your resume with you. Dad, don't you die and go and stand on all, and all the good things that you've done and all the people that you've helped and all the cases that you've won. Don't you do it. He said, Dad, if that is your hope and if that is my hope, we don't have a chance because that will never be good enough. And then he looked at his dad and he said, Dad, Jesus loves you at your worst. All you have, Dad, is Jesus, period. His dad looked at him, and he said, I'm going to need a few minutes to think about this. There were several hours of silence. And finally, his dad responds and says, Son, well, I guess Jesus really is all that I have. Friends, Jesus is all you have. And Jesus is all I have. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for raising Jesus up, for seating him at the right, your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power. Father, forgive us for not completely understanding all that that means and for not believing that you're still at work in the world as if your ministry and your ascension ended your ministry. Help us to see and to believe that you are alive and well today at work in the world. Help us to see how relevant the ascension is today for our lives. Comfort us with the fact that you will never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen.